Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Most of what we think we understand about selling is constructed atop a foundation of assumptions that has crumbled. This is in the introduction to the best-selling sales book essentially by Dan Pink called To Sell is Human. And really what he's covering in this book and what he covers in that, that's part of the introduction of the book. What he's really talking about there is that when it comes to sales, what most people think sales is, is actually not what sales is. This book is broken down into three parts. Part one is called rebirth of a salesman and part two is called how to be as in how to be a salesman and part three is what to do so what i have decided to do with this particular book is to break it into three separate podcasts because i think there's enough in it for uh, for digestion by taking one part at a time essentially and so obviously we're going to start with part one rebirth of a salesman the book opens with a story about a fuller brush salesman. Now, if you don't know what a fuller brush is or a fuller brush salesman, I didn't know either. But supposedly in America, it is a big deal, or at least it was a big deal. And he opens the book telling a story about a guy called Norman Hall. And he is in his 70s when the book is written. So this was um, maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago. And a fuller brush salesman was somebody who would go door to door selling brushes and cloths and um, you know cleaning products or and, and that kind of thing. And Norman Hall was the last one. And there was a point in time where a fuller brush salesman was ubiquitous across America. And because sales has changed so much over time and people buy things online, he's literally the last one in America as he begins this book. And it's an interesting approach he takes to explaining sales. And one of the things he talks about later on in the book is information parity. The idea that if you go to buy something, whether it's a brand new car, whether it's going to buy a used car or um, something in the shop, you know, doing your weekly shopping, the chances are there's information parity. And the, the example he gives in the book, and I'm kind of jumping ahead now, a bit of where I was planning on starting, but one of the things he talks about in the book is that if you're going to go and buy a used car back in the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s you just had to take the salesman's word for it that this was a good car and it it had never been in a crash it was had never been rebuilt all of those things that you know who knows you just kind of take their word on it whereas these days if you go to buy a used car all you need is the, the registration number of the car and you can look it up on any number of websites to find out all the information about that car so by the time you go in to look at an actual car there's information parity there's there's no inequality in the information the chances are that the person going in to buy the car has more information than the person who's selling the car and that's a kind of a key component about the the first part of this book the rebirth of a salesman and he makes the point that not everybody is in sales, but really everybody is in sales. His point is that to sell is human. He says that if you want to get somebody to, to exchange their money for your product or your service, that's obviously sales. But if you're in a presentation or if you're in a meeting and you're trying to move somebody from their current viewpoint to your viewpoint or a new viewpoint, that's sales. If you want your kids to clean their room, that's sales. You have to sell it to them. So 
To Sell as Human is a fantastic title for the book. And it begins, like I said, with part one, Rebirth of a Salesman. And chapter one is called Rawl in Sales Now. And begins that chapter with the story about Norman Hall and being the, the last Fuller Brush salesman. And then he goes on to talk about what he calls non-sales selling. So he himself, he said, he came up with the idea for this book uh, while he was procrastinating, right? He decided to look back over the last two weeks at this particular point in his life to see what was he up to the last two weeks. And um, he found that, not surprisingly, a lot of what he was doing was sending emails and networking with people and that kind of thing. He's an author, right? That's ultimately what he does. He, he is an author about, about, um, about these kinds of things. But he says in the book that I discovered that I spent a sizable portion of his time selling in a broader sense, persuading, influencing, convincing others. And he said, I'm not special. He said, physicians sell patients on a remedy. Lawyers sell juries on a verdict. Teachers sell students on the value of paying attention in class. Entrepreneurs woo founders or funders. Writers sweet talk producers. Coaches cajole players. And whatever the profession, we deliver presentations to fellow employees and to make pitches to new clients. And we try to convince the boss to loosen up a few dollars from the budget or human resources department and uh, a few more vacation aids. And it goes on and on talking about how we're all in sales all the time. And he went on then and he asked, I think it was over 9,000 people, what do you do at work? And as it turned out, over 40% of them said they worked in non-sale selling, right? As in persuading, influencing, and convincing. But there was another main finding that emerged from asking 9,000 people, what do you do at work? He said that people consider this aspect of their work crucial to their professional success, even in excess of the considerable amount of time they devote to it. And then in chapter two, he goes on to talk about how business has kind of changed or how he considers considers it to be that people are in the, the moving business and he says there's three keys to understanding this this workplace transformation as he puts it one entrepreneurship two elasticity and three edmed right which is uh, education in 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 medicine essentially is what he calls it so in chapter two that he starts off talking about how entrepreneurship has changed sales essentially if you're an entrepreneur you're all things to all people you're the you're the the tea boy or the tea girl you're the ceo you're the founder you're the hr department you're everything and he says that what's happening in, in especially in america at the moment it's estimated that 30 percent of american workers now work on their own and that by 2015, obviously it's quite a while ago now, the number of non-traditional workers worldwide, freelancers, contractors, consultants and the like, will reach 1.3 billion. That's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people who are working for themselves in what we now call the gig economy, right? People who are working on contract for places. They need to get good at selling themselves. So those people are in sales as well. But then it goes on to talk about the second part in chapter two, is elasticity. And he talks about a well-known company called Atlassian, um, which if you haven't heard of Atlassian, it's, they sell enterprise software. It's, it's large, complex packages um, that, you know, they do project management and track progress and uh, foster collaboration among employees, all that kind of thing. But what's really interesting is the year this book was written, in 2012, Atlassian collected $100 million in sales without one single salesperson or more specifically, so nobody that they would consider to be a salesperson. The CEO says, we have no salespeople. Because in a weird way, 
everyone is a salesperson, which is kind of a contradiction, but that's kind of the point in this whole book, that we're all in sales. Sales isn't about just having a, a, a magic list of words that you say to somebody. Actually, I'm jumping ahead now again, but later on in the book, he talks about um, asking people, what's the first thing you think of when you think of salespeople? And in the book, he puts it into a word cloud. And he asked, I don't know, a few thousand people all around the world, so from all different walks of life, when you think of a salesperson, what's the first word that comes to mind? So this word cloud, if you're not familiar with word clouds, it's essentially the bigger the word is in this bunch of words, the more that was the answer. The biggest word, obviously, was the number one answer. That's the idea. It's a visual representation of what people think of this particular thing. So he gives a top 25, and they're pretty much all negative words. But the biggest word that people think of when it comes to salespeople is pushy. And that's really interesting when you think about people who are entrepreneurs or people who are working in companies that don't want to consider themselves salespeople because they're probably thinking along those kinds of lines. They're probably thinking that salespeople are pushy or that salespeople are going to trick me into giving my money to them for something that I don't really want. And to kind of get away from the book for a second, I, I have a, a theory or I suppose a thought about what about how sales actually works, where how good sales works compared to how people think it works. Think about this, this is the way I always consider it, is that people hate being sold to, but they love buying things. Think about the last thing that you purchased that you really, really wanted, whether it was a bottle of perfume or a, a computer game, a brand new coat, car, whatever, right, pint, <laughs> whatever it was, the last thing that you bought that you really, really wanted, my guess is that you didn't think twice about handing over the money or thinking this is a rip-off or this is um, not worth it. Because you wanted it, the, the price was just the price. That's just what it's going to cost. And that's a really interesting, I suppose, psychological approach to understanding sales. When it's something that you really, really want, the price is just the price. It doesn't matter. But if somebody is trying to sell you something, and we have all spotted those people, that person who, who rings your doorbell, does it, you're sitting down with your dinner, and starts talking to you about your broadband provider, or starts talking to you about, uh, you know, electricity provider, or whatever it is, they're there purely to sell to you. You haven't gone looking for them. They've they've interrupted you, and now you now you're all of your defenses come up, and you do everything you can to try and get rid of them, right? Unless you happen to be in the market for broadband or whatever it is. But generally, when those people call to your door, or when somebody approaches you, <laughs> do you ever get that person who approaches you in a shop and just hovers and says, hey, is everything okay? Can I help you with anything at all? They're just trying to sell you something and it just makes you fairly uncomfortable, again, unless you're looking for help. Generally, those people, though, are trying to sell something to you. And the, po the whole point in this book is that that isn't what sales is. It's, it's not what sales ever should have been. And it's definitely not what sales is now with information parity, where everybody has the same information or the, uh, the same access to the same information. Ultimately, what he's talking about in this book is making sure that you are, if you are in sales, which you are, if you work on reception in, a, in an organization, you're in sales. You're the first person that a, per, a potential client meets is the, is the receptionist. If you are um, a dishwasher in a restaurant, that's all part of sales as well. This is his whole point. Sales should be about providing solutions. Now, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I think I, I 
I'm not 100% sure if it's actually in this book or in a different book, but I'm pretty sure it's this book where he talks about a uh, Mentos, you know, the, the chewy mints, right, that you buy in the shop. Their salespeople are trained to go into, you know, the mom and pop store, as they call them in America, the, the corner shop, and to be a consultant to the store owner. They're not there to try and force mentals onto them, like, and that's what it, that's the difference between buying, buying something that you want and being sold to. You see, when the the mentals salesperson goes in, he'll look at the entire display and position himself as the expert and tell the shopkeeper, "You need to move those ones over here. Buy some more Smarties for over here. Kit Kats for over there. Uh, you're actually okay for mentals. You've got loads there. They're displayed quite well." And what that does is it builds trust. And ultimately what the Mentos guy is trying to do is, is to is to build rapport. Is to make sure that he's actually providing a solution. So that when the guy comes in, with the next time he sees this guy coming into his, into his shop or into his store, his defences are not going up. He welcomes them because he knows this guy isn't going to try and sell something to him. And then when the time is right, he goes, you know what, actually you do need some Mentos fare. It's about the longer game. Right, that, I hope that makes sense. But it, we'll come back to that. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is in this book. I probably should have checked that first. But it's a it's an interesting approach to sales, and that's what he's talking about in this book. To sell as human, we're all in sales. We're all about providing solutions, regardless of the business that you're working in. Anyway, back to Atlassian. They collected at hundred million dollars without a single salesperson. The way they do it is through elasticity, right? Which is the second part of chapter two in this book. It's that. People don't necessarily specialize in one particular area that they should be able to cover lots of different areas, essentially. Or as he describes it, the new breadth of skills demanded by established companies. You're way more valuable to a company, I think, if you can if you can do lots of different things. You might be able to be a project manager or not even to be able to write code or sling code, as they say. Um, but to at least understand it, to be able to have an intelligent conversation. The more intelligent conversations you're able to have across an organization, the more, the more valuable you're going to be, ultimately. Then he goes on to talk about another company, an even bigger company who are based in uh, Silicon Valley in, in California, called Palantir. Now... They don't have salespeople either, but what they do have is what they call forward deployed engineers. And this is genius. This is this is a good one. What they're doing is rather than having traditional salespeople on the phone or giving people, believe it or not, if you've never worked in sales, sometimes they're given scripts. If the person on the phone says this, you say this. If they say that, you say that. And you're literally following like a flow diagram of things to say they know how to get past all of your defenses, basically. But what he's talking about here is, is not those kinds of people. He calls them forward deployed engineers, or what the company calls forward deployed engineers. They send their actual software engineers out to companies to figure out how can we help you. So... As I'm sure you know, you get onto the internet and you're looking at a new piece of software for your business or for your department or uh, you're looking at something like Spotify or Netflix. What's the first thing you do, right? If, you, if you're pretty sure you want it, but you're not 100% sure, get the free trial, right? The freemium model is what they call it. And the freemium uh, version generally has some bits of the main bit and they try and, they try and uh, tempt you all the way along. So it could, sometimes it's a seven-day free trial. Sometimes it is... Um, a free trial for as long as you like but you've only got limited access to some of the features right that kind of thing so this is what this this company uh, 
Palantir do. They they give out a, a free version of their software and then they send out their forward deployed engineers. These are people who help to write the software, who know the, the actual content or the the platform backwards, right? And they're able to answer the customer's questions. So there's no sleazy sales tactics where they're saying, you know, hurry, 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 the sale ends soon. There's none of that nonsense. They know that the product speaks for itself. If you want some help, this is how you would do that. Oh no, you'd actually need to pay for that feature. Yeah, you can do that, but you would need to pay for that feature. That's not sales. That's just that's just how it is. This is you can you can do this, this, and this. If you want to do the next five things, you're going to have to pay for them. So forward deployed engineers who are, if you've ever met an engineer, they're absolutely not salespeople. Right? I would say, um, although having said that, that's a contradiction because I am both an engineer and a salesperson. Um, so who knows if that's true or not? But for the for the most part, engineers, especially coders, they like to sit in front of the computer with their uh, EDM, right? That's electronic dance music. I like to have that on and uh, sling code, as they say. So when they're forced to go out into the big bad world and actually talk to their customers, it's brilliant for the customers because they get to speak to someone who's an actual expert in the piece of software that they're trying to understand. And it's great for the engineer because they get real real time feedback on what they've actually built, which is hugely, hugely important. Um, to a company so a very very intelligent approach by that company Palantir to, to to have those what they call forward deployed engineers and the third thing he talks about is EdMed or the educational services and healthcare which in 2012 and the book was written was the largest growing job sector in the US and these jobs were all about moving people all about those I guess those softer skills of bedside manner for for the medical industry or the health healthcare services and education as well is about moving people or kind of understanding uh, learning styles and abilities and tailoring your teaching to that which is um, ultimately what you're looking to do so in that particular section of the the book he talks about he tells a few different stories basically about people who um, a couple that he knows actually who are one is a, a nurse i think and one is a teacher and how they have to employ essentially sales to to move people along from a particular view, viewpoint that they have to a, a more useful viewpoint and i'll read out of the book here it says uh, healthcare and education both revolve around non-sale selling the ability to influence to persuade and to change behavior while striking a balance between what others want and what you can provide them which is a really interesting way of of considering that job sector that it is sales even though it's education and uh, medical care or health services and he ends this particular chapter by asking some a, a, a few questions and these four questions are for you to decide if you're actually in the sales business yourself and he's uh, i'll give you the, i'll give you the four questions question one do you earn your living trying to convince others to purchase goods or services fair enough that's pretty much sales if you answered no go to question two Question two is, do you work for yourself or run your own operation, even on the side? Some people yes, some people no. Obviously, there's sales involved in that. Question three then, though. Does your work require elastic skills? The ability to cross boundaries and functions, to work outside your specialty, and to do a variety of things different throughout the day, which is most people. Because one of the things he says in this chapter as well is that the the manufacturing jobs, those labor-intensive jobs, we all know what's happening with those jobs. They're all getting automated out of existence. So people are moving more into those elastic skills. And the fourth question then, do you work in education or healthcare? Then you're in sales. So 
it's it's an interesting approach especially question three there having those elastic skills if you do presentations if you have to get a point across in a meeting that's sales that's all that's that's ultimately what it is it's not about being pushy it's not about having a magic script that's going to get people to part with their money it's about more than that it's about it's about moving people that's that's what he's saying in this book as well it's it's you're in the moving business essentially it is what sales is the third chapter and the the final bit i'll, I'll finish on for this uh, particular podcast is a little bit of latin right for you caveat emptor to caveat vendator so caveat emptor we all, yeah, I was going to say, we all know what that means because we all speak Latin. We don't. It means uh, buyer beware. And caveat venditor means seller beware. And this is what I was talking about when he, he has the, the word cloud there now for how people consider salespeople. They consider them to be pushy and difficult and annoying and uh, dishonest even is in there, manipulative. All of those words, smarmy, essential, important. But the main ones are pushy, yuck, uh, <laughs> difficult, annoying, all those kinds of things. So in this third chapter, he talks about uh, a joke, uh, a Joe, a guy called Joe Girard, who is basically cons- he considers himself to be one of the best salespeople of all time. Um, in one year, he sold one thousand four hundred and twenty-five cars in Detroit, and these weren't fleet sales. This was like what he calls in the book belly to belly. Uh, so one person at a time. So imagine that's like is that several cars every day uh, for the entire year. Uh, quite an achievement. And then he wrote a book, obviously enough, uh, to how to sell anything to anybody. And now he starts off quite well. So this is the, the author, Dan Pink, is talking about this guy, Joe Gerard, who he, he has an interesting approach to sales that, you know, recommendations is ultimately he's talking about he calls it gerard's rule of 250 that each of us have uh, 250 people in our lives that we know well enough to invite to a wedding or a funeral you'll also tell those people about the guy you bought the car from i think it's called dunbar's number i think dunbar's number is about 120 or 150 essentially that's how many names or faces you can hold on to in in your um, network ties in nicely with their uh, tribe size back in the day as well right if you want to uh, look into the, the caveman tribes and all that kind of thing getting off the point but gerard's rule of 250 is that if he sells a car to to one of those 250 people that he knows well they'll tell their 250 people and they'll tell their 250 people and that's it basically that's how he did it but he kind of goes a bit off the rails then when he starts talking how he cold calls people so he'll just look this is back in the 70s he'd look up the phone book and uh find a random name uh, ask for the wrong person and uh he'd kind of manipulate the conversation and say okay well I'll, I'll give a call back when your husband is home that kind of thing and um, even though he knew he was onto the wrong person he just randomly picked a number in the first place and then try and get a call back and try and get a, a sale moving that way like it's i guess it's in it's it's one way to cold call it's um you know there's there's pluses and minuses to whether you know just picking up the phone and randomly trying to sell something to somebody over the phone is a good idea or not some people will tell you cold calling is essential some people tell you it's absolutely dead I guess it depends on your industry. But in the book, this guy, uh, Joe Gerard, there's no talking him out of this. He doesn't care about the internet because he's still around these days. He doesn't care about the internet, doesn't care about, um, you know, that the asymmetrical information is, doesn't exist anymore. He, he he still thinks his way is the only way to, to sell. And so then he he gets past this guy, uh, Joe Gerard, and, he, and, he, and he's, he tells a tale then of two Saturdays, essentially, where... One Saturday he goes to a used car uh, lot and 
watches two guys from a from a, a company called SK Motors, where this is like the old school version selling cars. A person comes in and they they haggle over the price, and the guy takes the car for a test drive, and and off he goes. And they sell maybe I think it's three or four cars in a day. And the next Saturday, then he talks about going to a, another company a couple of miles away called Carmax, where you know everyone's wearing t-shirt and jeans kind of very uh, laid back but what's really interesting is that the the people in the first place right the old-fashioned place their commission was based on the more money they got off the car the more commission they got which is fairly standard but in the then the other place on the second saturday in carmax their commission makes up their entire salary but the commissions are not based on the price of the car the commissions are set so selling a budget car gets the same amount of commission as selling an expensive one. And the customer knows that. And because of that then, that removes the temptation for the salesperson to try and push something onto somebody that they might not necessarily want or need. That's the first thing. The second thing is that these people who work in CarMax, they know that the person coming in to buy a car is probably educated or may not be educated about the particular car they're looking for. So they sit them, either the, 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 the person working there sits on one side of the desk, the customer sits on the other side of the desk. But the key difference here is that the screen isn't facing the person working there, it's to the side. So that both the customer and the employee can look at the screen. So they'll go through it together. And this is the fundamental difference about the rebirth of a salesman. That it isn't about trying to hoodwink somebody or to hold to, to be the gatekeeper of the information. It's about providing a solution. It's about ensuring that somebody is getting is comfortable. Because remember what I said a few minutes ago that people love buying things, but they hate being sold to. So if you're if you're especially in this day and age where we're bombarded ever, more than ever with advertisements, if you're trying to force something onto somebody, they'll smell a rat way quicker these days than they would have back in the seventies, or even back in the seventies and the eighties. They wouldn't have had much choice but to just believe you. And that's what's key here about this this new approach to sales that the internet has given us is information parity. And what he's talking about in this book, To Sell as Human, we're all in sales. We're all in sales. You just have to realize that sales isn't about being pushy. It isn't about being smarmy or sleazy. It's not about having a, a list of magic words. It's about providing solutions. It's about, it's, it's about making sure that people understand that we may have the solution for you, we may not. Like Atlassian or uh, Palantir, Palantir uh, where they have their, their forward deployed engineers. It isn't necessarily about trying to get somebody to give you their money. It's about providing a solution. And that's true whether you're face-to-face -face with customers, whether you are in a uh, business meeting or de delivering a presentation, uh, working for yourself. You have to be genuinely curious about what the person is looking for. If they've come talking to you or they're willing to take a meeting with you, you have to make sure that you're aware of of what they're looking for. And that's where you get into active listening and um, asking probing questions and in your own head thinking, I, I might not have the solution for this person. This might not be what they're looking for, but I might be able to do it. I might be able to find something for them. Just like the guy who's selling the chewy mints into the, the corner shop. He's not trying to He's not trying to force his sale on people. He's just trying to provide a solution. Hopefully his product is part of their solution, but it might not be this time, but it might be next time.
So until next time, where we talk about part two of this book, how to actually go and put this all into practice. I shall talk to you very soon. Thanks everyone. If you've ever seen the film Glen Gary, Glen Ross, you remember the scene uh, where Alec Baldwin arrives in and basically tells the, the lads in the office what's up when it comes to selling. Uh, some of them are struggling, some of them uh, are not doing too well and this guy Alec Baldwin has been parachuted in basically to make sure that the, the targets are hit and he could not be more of an alpha male really and he gives a big long speech you know the big brass balls and all that kind of stuff but he he gets a chalkboard and he writes abc always be closing right that's his his kind of mantra the whole time no matter what you're doing every every single transaction with a customer always be closing it's always trying to move them towards making sure that you are getting them to sign on the line that is dotted as he says in the film but in the book Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human, he has a different ABC. And it kind of comes back to one of the things we talked about in part one, where there is not information asymmetry, as in all the information about a particular product or service does not lie with the salesperson anymore. There's information parity. Everyone pretty much has access to the same information, whether it's buying a used car, uh, signing up to a particular piece of software as a service, whatever it's going to be, generally people have access to the exact same type of information. So his ABC in the book To Sell as Human is attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. So part two of this mini-series, this uh, series of three, we're going to talk about the, the new ABC, attunement, buoyancy and clarity. Now attunement is essentially what would have been called rapport back in the day. So just kind of, you know, actively listening and making sure you're, you're reading all the signals correctly. But there's a bit more of a nuance to it in, in this book, which is, uh, I actually think is quite brilliant the way he talks about it. B then is about buoyancy. And really it, that's, I guess it's about, he talks about an ocean of uh, negative, not, not an ocean of negativity, an, o an ocean of no's, right? as in everyone's going to say no to you. Like you have to, you have to wade through all the people who are going to knock you back to get to that yes. And it's about having the buoyancy. The way I used to think about it when I was working in sales a long time ago is I would, I would think about it from an analytical point of view. I would remove emotion from the situation and I'd make sure that I, was being analytical in what I was doing. I'd make sure that I was not taking offense when somebody said no. I'd be curious about why they said no. Why did they say no? Is it the wrong time of day? Did I approach them wrong? Uh, did I not ask enough questions? Or are they just purely just not interested in what I was selling? And sometimes you'd, you'd come to an answer, sometimes you wouldn't. But that's ultimately what he's talking about in this book here is, is buoyancy, is to make sure that you're not put off by people saying no. There's a great guy, uh, I can't remember his name is now, but he I remember reading about it before that the way he would train his salespeople would be to collect as many no's as you could. So don't be afraid of the no, right? A lot of the time when people are training people in sales, they'll say you have to get them to say yes loads of times. They call it the yes ladder or whatever they want to call it. You don't get people up that yes ladder. The more they say yes, the better, which is all well and good. But sometimes somebody is just not even 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 if somebody is a prospect or a lead, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to convert into a sale. So he talks about making sure this is the other guy I can't remember his name now, like I said, but he talks about collecting all, as many no's as you can. 
So, so the worst thing that can ever happen in sales, I think, is when somebody says, I'll think about it, or, you know, uh, maybe maybe give me a call back. And maybe is actually worse than a no. Right? You'd prefer somebody just to tell me, is, is, this, is this a lost cause? Is, is this like something that you're just purely not interested in? I'd prefer you to tell me no than to, you know, than to give me a maybe, which is essentially just a long no, right? Or what some people call an Irish no, I think is what they call it, like a, a long maybe, or whatever you want to call it. You want to get people to say no as much as possible. But that's what this second part is about, this buoyancy. And the third part then is clarity. So the, the ABC, in, in back to the book now, he talks about C being clarity. So when it comes to clarity, what he's talking about there is making sure that, that you're clear about the solution that you're offering, but ensuring that it's the solution to a problem that your potential customer has. So rather than, like it's like any good salesperson doesn't, doesn't just talk, talk, talk about the benefits and, the, and the, the, the features and the benefits and all that kind of stuff, you should be listening. You should be, you should be listening more than you're talking. And only interjecting when when you're when you're either looking for clarity or you're talking about how your solution is fits their problem, if that makes sense. In this section as well, he also talks about uh, framing things. So if you've ever studied NLP or neuro linguistic programming, as it's called, they talk a lot about framing things to to refocus something for somebody, um, which we'll talk about when we get to it. And the final thing he talks about is to, is to give people an off-ramp or, or allow them to find the off-ramp to the destination. And in layman's terms, I guess that's what you would call the call to action, right? What do you actually want somebody to do? What is the next step for somebody to take when it comes, say you're, say you're trying to sell somebody a, uh, a service, um, a product, it doesn't actually matter what it is, what you're, what does, I don't need to give an example. But if you're trying to sell something to somebody, they're not necessarily going to hand you money there and then, but what you need to do is to get them to take the next step, to show them the off-ramp to the destination. And that's what he's talking about in this book, To Sell as Human. Uh, as part of, of your, your job as a salesperson is to give people the next step. It's actually, and of course, like I've said many times already, this book isn't just about sales. It isn't just about um, sales in the traditional sense. It's about more than that. It's about moving people. And that's what we said, what we talked about in part one is that we're all in the moving business, right? If you want to make sure that people arrive to a meeting on time or when the meeting is actually concluded, that everybody knows what they're supposed to do, that you can motivate people and persuade people to take the action that they're supposed to take. And one of the things that you will do to allow that to happen is have clarity on what the next steps are. So anytime I've run a meeting, I'd always say, okay, does everyone know what they're doing? So what are you doing? Right? And what's she going to do next? And what are you going to do next? So you go around the table and make sure that everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And I don't mean do it like in a headmastery kind of way, but I mean do it in a way that's, okay, is everybody actually clear what the purpose of this meeting was and what the next steps are for everybody? Okay, you're going to do those four things, you're going to do those things, and blah, 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 blah. And then when, that actually leaves people in, in a good frame of mind then because they leave a meeting thinking, Okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what my next steps are. Anyway, back to the to the beginning of the chapter where he talks about attunement. And like I said, this is what some people might call building rapport, but there is a little bit more to it than that. He talks about an experiment where you get, um, this is, I, I don't know if this is meant to be done with a permanent marker or not, but you, you get a marker and you draw a capital E on your own forehead. And in this particular experiment, it's a, it's a famous experiment, what you're looking for is to understand, if, I, if me and you are standing in a room together and I say, here's a marker, draw the letter E on your forehead. 
what is interesting is to see if you draw the E in uh, in mirror so that in your own mind's eye you'd be able to read it or do you write it the other way around that it would be the wrong way for you so that I can read it and he says that depending on what way somebody writes this letter it's a window into his or her mind and really what this will tell you as well as is what it tells you about what's in somebody's mind is their perspective do you attune yourself with others and I guess another way of, of, of perhaps explaining is to use empathy, which actually, now that I think about it, he does get, in, get into in the book as well, um, about how it's uh, perspective taking or, or disattunement. It isn't just about um, the practical side of things. It's, there's an emotional element to it as well, which we'll get to. But he breaks it down into uh, three principles, uh, somebody's ability to attune themselves with others. He says the first thing to do is to increase your power by reducing it. So I'm actually going to read a section from the book here just because rather than me trying to explain it, um, it's probably just easier if I just read it. And so this is directly from the book. And it's what he's talking about here is um, a, a way to understand how, how the more power you have or the more, more power you believe you have, the more it skewers your ability to, to use your, your attunement or to, to understand something from somebody else's perspective. Imagine that you and your colleague Maria go out to a fancy restaurant that's been recommended by Maria's friend Ken. The experience is awful. The food stinks, the service is worse. The following day, Maria sends Ken an email that says only, about the restaurant, it was marvellous, just marvellous. How do you think Ken will interpret the comment? Will he consider the email sincere or sarcastic? Think about it for a moment before reading further. In a related experiment, uh, they used a version of this scenario to examine power and perspective taking from another angle and found results similar to what they uncovered with the e-test. Participants with a high power generally believed that Ken found the email sarcastic. Those with low power predicted he found it sincere. So who's correct? The chances are it's the low power group. Remember, Ken had no idea what happened at the dinner. Unless Maria is chronically a sarcastic person, of which there's no evidence in the experiment, Ken has no reason to suspect insincerity on the part of his friend. To conclude that he inferred sarcasm in Maria's email depends on privileged background knowledge that Ken doesn't have. So what the researchers then, basically this is me talking again, now what the researchers then concluded was that the uh, power leads individuals to anchor their, their own vantage point and it's insufficiently uh, tailored or it's insufficiently uh, adjusted to other people's perspective. So there's an inverse relationship between power and perspective taking. So basically the conclusion from that is that the ability to move people, as in to persuade or to, to sell something to them or to influence them, it depends on power's in inverse. Right? So understanding another person's perspective and getting inside their own head and seeing the world through his or her eyes. So that's a really interesting way to think about how you attune yourself with others. If you think you know everything there is to know about your product or even worse, you think you know everything there is to know about your potential client or your potential customer, there's an imbalance of power there in your own head and there's less chance of you being able to see the situation from the other person's point of view. Let's say you're selling insurance, for example, and you meet a potential client or a potential customer, and they are 
mid fifties, um, you know, earning sixty five thousand a year. I don't know, and they are uh, slightly overweight, maybe, or you know, they're working in middle management. What there may be some criteria that makes you think oh, I've met this person a million times before. So now, what's happened in your head is you've you've gone in here thinking I know how to sell to this guy. And that that imbalance of power, that that high power that you believe you have in the situation, and the high power being that you know everything there is to know, it's going to reduce your ability to attune with that person. So you have to assume, even though you might have met people that are a million a million people just like this, you have to you have to lower your understanding of the other person because you've only just met them. And that's what allows you to go into a sales conversation or a, a moving conversation, whatever you want to call it, in a way that will allow attunement to happen, as in it'll allow people, allow you to see the situation from the other person's point of view. And it'll naturally lead to you being able to ask better, more leading questions. The second principle then of attunement, he says, is to use your head as much as your heart. Perspective take, this, this is a quote from the book now, perspective taking is a cognitive capacity. It's mostly about thinking. Empathy is an emotional response. It's mostly about feeling. But the two of them are crucial. And this is where it becomes slightly hazy, where it becomes difficult to teach this to somebody, well, 80% of the time you should use your head and 20% of the time you should use your heart. It doesn't necessarily work like that because the, the humans are messy and they're full of contradictions. And you can ask somebody their opinion one day about something and then the next day they might have the exact opposite opinion. And both days they have, they're full of conviction. Uh, about both of their opinions we all do that we all we all should be able to change our mind and change our opinions on things but what's really important is to understand that when it comes to attunement or understanding people there you use the perspective taking as he called it in the book that's a cognitive skill but you also allow empathy in there as well allow your emotions to kind of think well what's my gut feeling tell me here about this particular situation the third thing then the third principle that he talks about is mimic strategically and what mimic strategically means is that you are, and again, like I said at the beginning there, this is about rapport right now. If, you, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with rapport, if you want to influence somebody, if you want to persuade somebody, or if you want to sell something to somebody, one of the best things you can do to make them like you or to make them feel attuned to you, if you like, is to physically copy their movements. Now, that doesn't mean that you do it in some weird comical way, like every time they scratch their face, you scratch your face, or every time you know they make a gesture, you make it the same gesture. That just becomes odd and creepy. But if you do it almost at a distance, is what I would call it, in the book he calls it mimicking strategically, it can have a very, very powerful and profound effect. And you'll naturally find that you fall into that kind of rapport, that kind of um, mimicry, uh, as he calls it in the book. You'll fall into that with people that you are close to. Family members, your husband, your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friends who haven't seen each other in ages. Well, we've, all, we've all been in that situation where you meet up with a friend and you naturally fall into, the, into your rhythm of speaking to each other. And there's, there's no... There's no awkwardness. Uh, you'll, you'll find that you're, you're, you'll speak at the same rate. You'll use the same phrases. Uh, you'll sit in the same way. Uh, you'll, you'll naturally mimic each other's gestures. So what they're talking about in this book, and this is widely known in NLP as well, in neuro-linguistic programming, is to build rapport or to mimic strategically. And he says in the book that human beings are natural mimickers. We do it naturally, like I just said. So there are the three principles of... Uh, of attunement but there's one extra thing that he, he talks about uh, it's called the ambivert advantage right ambivert being being both an introvert and an extrovert and he says that 
he gives a big whole speech about the extroverts are considered to be the best salespeople in the world. And the reason they're considered the best salespeople because they're outgoing, they're able to keep a conversation uh, alive and uh, they crack jokes and they're, they're, they don't take no for an answer. They're all kind of the characteristics of somebody who's an extrovert. And he says there's one teeny tiny problem is that there's absolutely no proof that extroverts are the best salespeople. Introverts can be just as good at selling, just as good at motivation, just as good as good as anyone at, at influencing or persuasion or any of those things. So there's no set rule in place that somebody has to be an extrovert to be a, a decent salesperson or to be um, an influence. I was going to say an influencer, but that's what somebody on Instagram is. That's not what I mean by an influencer. Somebody who's good at persuading, somebody who's good at influencing. So getting back to the the A, B, C, the A is for attunement, B is for buoyancy. And this particular chapter goes back to our famous Fuller Brushman, Norman Hall, from the very beginning of the book. And the author, Dan Pink, is again meeting up with him in San Francisco. And at the time that he is meeting the, the, the Fuller Brushman, Norman Hall, and Norman Hall is on his way just to drop some products to some people who'd, who'd bought some brushes and cloths and whatever from him. And he arrives into the building and the people aren't there yet because he's there early. So he gets brought into the, the break room, which is like a common break room between a few different companies. And as he's sitting there talking to the author, a woman walks in and starts to make coffee. And Dan Pink, the author, and Norman Hall, the, the Fuller Brush salesman, they're having a conversation. But the woman has her back turned because she's making coffee. And Mr. Fuller Brushman himself puts up his hand as if like just, sorry, just give me a second here. And says to the lady, are you, are you new in the office down the way there? And she says, uh, yeah, yeah, we are, yeah. Norman Hall, Fuller Brushman, he keeps talking. He says, uh, well, I've been calling on these two attorneys here that I'm, I'm dropping these products into for many, many years. And I was actually going to introduce myself to you. And I'm not sure if there's much interest. And, he's, and he gives a little bit of a sales pitch. And obviously the woman, she's just there to make coffee. She doesn't care. She goes, um, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, great. Uh, and he goes, I'm sure you've heard of the, the Fuller Brush and she's like, um, yeah, and she's quite obviously uncomfortable at this stage. And the author, Dan Pink, is just is watching, basically watching a master at work. And it's become very clear that this has become a, a game of beat the clock, right? She's l definitely going to leave when her coffee is made. So she's put the coffee into the filter thing and it's drip, drip, drip. And that's the whole point here. So, and the woman says, you know, actually, I, you know, I don't think we've any need... And Norman Hall says, "Well, like you know, I don't like to, I don't like to press myself on people." And she says, um, "Okay, well, thank you." And he says, "I carry the home catalog, and then I do supplies for certain offices with uh, mirror cleaning items, uh, and that's why I'm here." And at this point, now the woman has turned around, and she's still, you know, not really that interested. And he keep Norman Hall just keeps talking. And he explains that the lawyers have been customers of his for 15 years and uh, he, you know, they put a big order in the day before and now he's just here to drop that stuff off. And he tells her repeatedly that he's been working in the neighborhood for four decades. And he, re he reiterates again, which I think is funny, he says, you know, I don't like to press, uh, I'm not one of those pushy salespeople, I just have some products that you, you may or may not be interested in. They might be useful, they might not. And he says, look, I just, I just, I'd just, love a few minutes of your time. Um, I, I don't want to waste any of your time. Um, and now at this point, the coffee is done. And the woman who's just about to leave says, uh, well, I suppose, yeah, okay, look, drop by on your way out. And uh, he asks her name and she says her name and she leaves. And then 
Norman Hall, this is my favourite bit. He turns back around to Dan Pink, the author of the book, and says, that is how it starts. Which is, and it, there, there is no clearer example of, of, of what he's talking about in the book of this buoyancy than that. This idea that, I mean, most people wouldn't start a conversation with somebody who had their back to them, who's clearly just there to make coffee, is is not a prospect, has not been uh, talked, has not asked about the products in any particular way at all, hasn't even engaged. And yet Norman Hall just keeps talking and talking and get, he, he it's like he breaks through that that initial shield that we all have when somebody approaches and, and, and tries to sell. Now this Norman Hall guy, like I said at the, at the beginning of part one of this little mini-series, He's been on it for 40 years, and you cannot be do be a door-to-door sale. This buoyancy, unless you have this ability just to kind of nod and smile when people say, no thanks, it's not for me, you just, it's as if it, it's as if she didn't say anything. And he just kind of goes, look, I don't like to press myself, it might not be for you. I have been doing this for four decades in the area, and I am, you know, he talks about his successes, and there's so much in there, there's such, there's such a rich tapestry of, of what he's woven there in that little conversation while she's waiting for her, waiting for her coffee to be made. And he doesn't, like, it's like anything, he doesn't want her to buy it right there and then. He just wants to get to the next stage. It's like your, your CV or your resume for a job. You don't get the job based off your CV, which might sound like, well, yes you do. You don't. Your CV or your resume, whatever you call it, that gets you to the next stage. It gets you to the interview. That's what it's supposed to do. And that's what he's doing here with this, this sales process. And it could turn out that this woman who's making her coffee has absolutely no interest in his products. But at least he has a little sliver of light there. A little glimmer of hope that maybe, oh look, maybe he might sell her a cloth for $5 this particular day. He might come back next next month and sell her something for $100. And that's how it works. That's how persuasion works. It's not just to do with sales. What I'd love you to do is to think about the psychology behind this. Think about how we move people. How we put forward our case while maintaining that buoyancy. That ability to, to take the, the punches to the face, the metaphorical punches to the face of people saying no, no thanks. And one of the worst things in sales is apathy. When people just don't care. They're not, they're not livid that you're talking to them. They're barely even listening to you. That's one of the worst things. And that's really where the buoyancy comes in. It's been able to, to kind of move beyond that and just kind of be comfortable with the uncomfortableness if you like so that's the first thing he talks about when it comes to buoyancy is our hero norman hall the author dan pink then goes on to talk about what i think is a is a a, so simple but a hugely powerful way to talk to yourself and he he goes into a bit of the history of uh, motivational speakers, the guys all back in the days, like Anthony Robbins, who I'm a huge fan of, and and you know Jim Rohn, and, and a few I can't remember all the names of the people he mentions, but he mentions all the ones you would probably have heard of, who talk about um, having positive affirmations. I can do this. I am the greatest salesperson in the world. I'm I'm the greatest gift to whatever insert whatever makes sense for you there. But then he brings it back to uh, a, a kids program called Bob the Builder. Now. I don't know what part of the world you're listening to this in. But if I was to say to you, can we fix it? Do you know what the answer to that is? And if you have young kids or if you were watching this yourself, you know the answer to can we fix it is, yes, we can. But he uses that as a, as a very powerful example of the way we should talk to ourselves. And he calls it interrogative self-talk. A lot of the time people will, will, will 
go on about positive self-talk, which is very useful as well. But interrogative self-talk is much, much better. And that's why he uses Bob the Builder as an example. So can we fix it? Yes, we can. And ultimately, what the, the definition of this type of self-talk is, is to ask yourself questions. Say you're giving a presentation. You could, you could talk to yourself till you're blue in the face saying, I'm the greatest presenter the world has ever seen. This presentation is going to go absolutely brilliantly, which is all nice to have. And that kind of positive, positive thinking, is, it's, it's useful to a point. But what he talks about in this book which is brilliant, is this interrogative self-talk. So rather than saying, I'm the greatest presenter in the world, if it's a presentation, for example, you would ask yourself a question. Can I do a great presentation? Which is a much better way of putting it to yourself, of framing it for yourself, rather than just saying, I'm the greatest presenter in the world. Ask yourself, can I do a great presentation? And he says the reasons are twofold. And the first reason that he says that you're much better off asking give a great presentation. Well, yeah, I can. And you start to answer that yourself and go, yeah, I can because I'm going to talk slowly and I'm going to make sure my slides are clear. I'm going to make sure that I plant my feet. I'm going to make sure I've got a glass of water with me. I'm going to make sure I make eye contact. All those things start to, to swirl around in your head. So by asking yourself a, a good question, you're formulating the answer in your own mind. And the second reason he says is that this type of self-talk that interrogates yourself or interrogative self-talk, he says that it may inspire thoughts about autonomous or intrinsically motivated reasons to pursue a goal. And he says that declarative self-talk, so just declaring things to be true, it can sometimes bypass your own motivations, which is, and we're kind of, it's, it's getting very granular there, but it's actually worth pausing on for a second. Can I do a great presentation as part of that? Like I said, the first part is, well, by asking yourself that question, you begin to formulate the strategy for how you'll make, you'll, you'll actually do a great presentation. But the second thing, and this is hugely, hugely, hugely important, is that can I do a great presentation? It, it's like it fires up your intrinsic motivation, your, the, the motivation that comes from within your own, your own soul, if you like, for, for want of a better, better answer there. It's something that comes from within you. Can I do a great presentation? Yeah, I can, because this means something to me. And your, your motivations start to come to the surface then. So interrogative self-talk, write that one down. So that's what he said to do before the event, whatever it is. So if you're trying to be persuasive, if you're trying to sell something to somebody, if you're doing a presentation, you want to have a difficult conversation with a colleague, interrogative self-talk is to what you do beforehand. The second thing he says to do is during the event whatever the event is and he talks about positive ratios and this is hugely important especially for somebody who is in what they call inside sales he says if you're just making phone calls from inside an office uh, you've got to make you know whatever amount of calls every day he says he says about having this this positive ratio and it's about making sure that you, you you'll find your own level with this but to make sure that you have enough easy calls mixed in with the, the tough ones. If you're just making, you know, horrible call after horrible call, whether it's, like I said, whether it's a presentation, whether it's a, uh, a difficult conversation with a colleague or an actual sales conversation, if you, just, if you just stack up, if you stack up all the hard ones to begin with, all the ones that I don't know how this is gonna go, that's gonna, it's gonna affect, it's gonna affect you when you get to the actual, the, you know, the easy ones, the ones that are almost over the line kind of thing. So what he talks about is finding your own ratio with positive to negative or the, the easy ones to the, 
to the more difficult ones. And he talks again about our hero, Norman, Norman Hall, the, the Fuller Brushman. And he says that he follows him around for a day and he, he sometimes he comes out of an office mumbling under his breath about how rude some people can be. But he mixes that in with, with going into companies where he's embraced like an old friend. Like, ah, oh, Norman, how are you? Come on in, that kind of thing. You know, and there's handshakes and hugs and all that kind of stuff. So Norman Hall naturally mixes his his difficult ones, like his cold calling, if you like, with the ones that are that are nice and toasty and warm, if you like. So that's that's what a good thing to keep in mind when you are, like I said, doing a presentation. If it is a presentation that you have to do and you have to be uh, influencing people or trying to get people to make a decision, maybe there's like a low risk version of that you could do beforehand. And it could be just anything at all to get yourself into a positive frame of mind, which he actually says in the book, people cannot roll their eyes hard enough when, when people talk about um, positivity and stuff. And then he talks, the last thing to do, so after this, this is, we're still talking about buoyancy now, but he says what to do afterwards to keep yourself buoyant is have an explanatory style. So this explanatory style is about, again, it's about self-talk, but it's about how you explain situations to yourself. And I don't know if it's in this book or it could be in uh, something else I read, but it's it's to do with like top golfers is what I had heard before. So I'm kind of, I'm away from the book at the moment, but it actually fits in to what they talk about in the book, this explanatory style. If you imagine, say, let's say a football, right, a soccer player who uh, never misses penalties, and they step up to take a penalty and they miss or keeper saves it or whatever. There's some immediate self-talk that happens in that player's head who missed the penalty. Because this player generally scores their penalties, when they miss, they just explain the way, going, oh, well, I must have, you know, I must have just not connected with the ball right or um, maybe the keeper has watched too many of my videos of, of me taking penalties or something. They'll have some way to explain it that still allows their own vision of themselves to remain intact where somebody who always misses penalties probably has the exact opposite thought process in their head or their exact opposite way to explain it themselves they're running up to take a penalty and they think you know what i never get these fucking penalties i'm always missing these penalties and then they miss and uh, they go yep see i knew it and even if that person does score they go that's probably a fluke you know I, I never usually get them so it's all about how you explain it to yourself as well and in the book he mentions the phrase learned helplessness right people going oh i don't know uh, I, I don't know i don't know how to do it i'll actually just i just think it is something there um my own children right i've got three kids the youngest one uh boy he's uh one and a half he's in danger of learning that helplessness right that kind of <laughs> when he wants something that is within two feet of him and he's looking at you with those that frown <laughs> and i get it yourself and the reason that he has that helplessness is because he's got two older sisters who get him everything that he wants all he has to do is sit in the middle of the floor and things are handed to him because he is the baby the family and that's it's an it's an interesting way to 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 see it in its <laughs> in its raw form in a in the field as it were but we all are capable of this we're all capable of this explanatory talk that we do to ourselves or this explanatory self-talk where if it's a sales pitch that you're doing or it's a presentation what do you say to yourself afterwards as to why it went well or why it went badly and again back to norman hall he says that norman hall has an optimistic explanatory style when he's rejected as he was several times during the sales call on which i joined him that's him being i being the uh, the, the author he explained the rejections as temporary specific or external 
So he doesn't. It's not like he's wearing rose colored, rose tinted glasses the whole time, uh, going into sales and kind of just being oblivious to to the reality of the situation. But he always has a way to explain it that they might have said no, or they might have said they might have definitely said no this time, or or they were one hundred percent not interested this time. But in his head. He explains it in a way. Yeah, that's they say. They say definitely no way ever. But nah, they don't really mean that. And the end of this chapter finishes with <laughs> what I like to call our hero because he is a hero, Norman Hall, the the Fuller Brushman. Uh, he ends up back in Beth's office. So he's he's delivered some more stuff into people in that office, and uh, he goes up to see Beth, who's the woman making the coffee from earlier on. And uh, he has an appointment at eleven o'clock, and he doesn't come back down to almost eleven thirty. And Dan Pink, the author, says, you know, well, did she, you know, did she buy anything? And he shakes his head, no, no sale. And he said they walk in silence for maybe eight steps. And the last Fuller Brush man in San Francisco turns to me and says, but I think there's going to be a chance to get her the next time. Now, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about persuasion, influence, sales, moving people, then there's nothing more I can do for you. The very last thing that we'll talk about then is clarity is to have clarity when it comes to moving people. The A, B, C. A is attunement, B is buoyancy, and C is clarity. And in this particular chapter, he talks about one of the things that's, it's actually one of my, one of my probably one of my favorite things I've read about, about sales, about persuasion, about uh, influence that I've ever read, I've ever encountered. And he talks about finding the right problems to solve. And he gives an example. I think I might've mentioned this in the, the last episode as well. I might be wrong. But he talks about um, the people who sell Mentos mints, right? The, you know the, the the chewy mints that you buy, the sweets, right? Candy, as they say in America. And he says, so he, he does an interview with the, the CEO or the vice president of sales of the, the company that makes them. And he says, what he's seen is that the he's, they've seen a shift in what retailers are looking for. Everyone is just dog tired of salespeople coming in the front door and trying to push their product push their product and push their product those people who are looking who are just basically just closers like uh, like alec baldwin and, and glengarry glen ross he says what they're, they're not that's not what they're looking for what they're really looking for is unbiased business partners so that's how they train their sales staff they're not looking for how many packets of mentos chewy mints am i supposed to buy from you they're looking to see how can I improve overall sales. So as part of their process for approaching these these corner shops or these uh, these these shop owners, is to be like an expert in their field. So it might involve saying, you know what, you should have five flavors of our Mentos rather than seven, and it'll always involve making sure that they are uh, buying their competitors as well, because then. You know, once once that type of salesperson approaches you, you know that they're not going to go for the hard sale. And the way that you know they're not going to go for the hard sale is because they're recommending their own competitors to you. They go, well, that's that's interesting. That's an unbiased business partner. And that's what you're looking for, ultimately. So, and the last thing he talks about, and I, 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 I kind of want to just, there's a few other bits, actually, that he talks about. Now, there's a bit more to that mental story, which I won't get into. I'd, lo- I'd love you to read the book, to be honest. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a great example of what sales should be. It should be about offering solutions, even if in the short term that solution doesn't involve your product or service. So keep that in mind if you are in, in literal sales, that offering playing the long the long game sometimes is the best way of doing it. 
And then he talks about finding your frames. And he talks about, and here's um, here's a little little snippet for you, for um, for if you're ever in like a, whether well, this must be a, a very random table quiz, or very, very specific niche table quiz. If you ever wanted to know who coined the term unique selling proposition, or USP, it was Rosser Reeves. Right? Rosser Reeves was an American advertising executive from the middle of the 20th century, and that's, that's what he was uh, credited with coming up with the term, the unique selling proposition. Anyway, he talks about, um, he's also credited with one of the, the most famous stories in advertising. The author talks about uh, when this guy, Rosser Reeves and a colleague, they're having lunch in Central Park in America. And on the way back to their Madison Avenue office, ooh, fancy, they encountered a man sitting in the park begging for money. And his sign said, I am blind. And unfortunately, the man only had a few coins in, uh, in, in his cup. And... Reeves had the idea that I bet you I can I can dr- dramatically increase the amount of money the guy is, is raising just by adding four words to a sign. So this guy is blind. All the sign says is, I am blind. And this guy, Rosser Reeves, is genius, is going to add some more words. And what four words did he add? He added, it's springtime and I am blind. And that's it. And he won his bet, won his bet with his colleague. And this is the first frame that they talk about. I'm not going to get into all the frames because there, there's loads of them and they're, they're definitely worth a read. This is a way to frame something and it's based on a, a principle by another guy um, who has a great book called Influence, the, the Psychology of Persuasion, by uh, Robert Cialdini is his name. And it's called the Contrast Principle. So the most essential question somebody can ask is, compared to what? So... By this guy, Rosser Reeves, saying it's springtime and I'm blind, what that does is it's almost like it reminds people to compare their reality with the blind homeless guy. So the comparison is is pretty stark when it's, you know, I'm enjoying the nice springtime weather, but this guy's blind. Oh, I'll give him a few dollars. That's the idea behind that. Again, another great book. Uh, we're actually turning it into a course as well. Um, Robert Cialdini's book um, about influence. It's one of the best books, Six Principles of Persuasion. It's fantastic. So there's other there's other frames that he talks about. Um, the, the less frame, the experience frame, the label frame, the blemished frame. These are all different ways to get people to think about how they would reframe something in somebody's mind and to give it just that idea there or the an example of the contrast principle that just reframes the way people looked at that sign so the sign says i am blind and to reframe that for somebody in you really you're, you're getting into psychology there in, the, in a big way then but you're reframing it for somebody by comparing to what they have i'm enjoying the nice springtime weather but this guy is blind like i said and that's that's a reframing other than just saying this guy is blind. And that pretty much brings us to the end of, of part two of this three-part mini-series about Dan Pink's book, To Sell as Human. In our third and final part of this series, we're going to talk about what to do, right? So already we've talked about the rebirth of a salesman or a salesperson, um, how we're all in sales and how entrepreneurship and uh, is important these days. And then we talked about how all marketplaces have basically changed from caveat emptor to caveat vendator, from buyer beware to seller beware, because we all have information parity now. And in the third part, what we're going to talk about is the pitch, right? That sales pitch, that elevator pitch. 
but I think it gives, I don't know, seven or eight different types of pitches that you can use, the Pixar pitch, and loads of different ways to frame the story of your product or your service, or whatever it is that you need somebody to do. So this, remember, this isn't just about sales for sales' sake. It's about influence and persuasion and being in the moving game. So he talks about pitching. He talks about improvisation, right? Improv. If you've ever uh, been to improv, you know how, how talented those people are. And then how you actually are ultimately about trying to serve people. It should be, if you're in sales, if you're in the, the business of moving people, of, of influencing people, it should be about serving people ultimately so until next time thanks very much for tuning in very much appreciated please do follow us on twitter on instagram tell everyone this this podcast has already started to uh, to get quite big um bigger than i thought it would so i'm i'm quite happy about that obviously but um i want more people to hear i want you to tell me as well what you'd like to hear recommend books to us tell us what you want us to talk about and uh, I'll, I'll do my best to do that so until next time all right, so at this point, we're all fairly well agreed and it's understood that To Sell is Human, right? It's the name of the book and it's what we have been talking about for the last two parts of this small mini-series based on the book To Sell is Human by Dan Pink. And in part one, we talked about the rebirth of a salesman and really what that means is to understand that sales probably isn't what most people think it is. It isn't just about having a magic script that makes people part with their money. Sales doesn't necessarily have to be about a transfer of currency. It can be about moving somebody from a particular point of view to a new point of view. Or it can be about convincing somebody that they should do something that's mutually beneficial. So part one was all about the rebirth of the salesman. To understand that all of us are in sales. We're all in the moving business, as Dan Pink calls it in the book. We also talked then about having an entrepreneurial approach to these things that that kind of hustle nature i suppose which is something we talked about in part one and we talked about going from buyer beware to seller beware because of information parity there's no longer information asymmetry it's not like well the example he gives in the book is the used car salesman from the from the 70s or the 80s who had all the information about a particular car and it's not like that anymore we can have just as much, if not more, information about a particular car that we're going to buy. And it's actually true, no matter what it is you're going to buy. We're all inundated with information and data at all times. So there's information parity. We all have access to the same information. But then part two, the most recent podcast that we did, was about how to be. How to actually think, how to, how to conduct yourself, if you like, when it comes to sales or persuasion or motivation. The first thing was attunement. And attunement was the, the new word, if, if, if you like, uh, for rapport, is to be able to, to mimic somebody or strategically mimic somebody. And we talked about mixing that logic with the good feeling. So we talked about how attunement is really about using empathy but it's, also, it's basically using your head and your heart at, at the same time is what he said we talked about buoyancy and if you remember we talked about the fuller brush salesman norman hall and how he just never lost faith right he, he would always make sure that he he'd mix up his meetings so that he might take a couple of easy ones to start his day then maybe a couple of difficult ones back to a couple of easy ones and so on so when you're trying to move somebody if you're trying to persuade somebody perhaps try what you're going to try in a low risk environment 
And the last thing then he talked about was clarity. And it's actually the last part of the last podcast is actually where I'm going to start this podcast. Clarity was all about making sure that you, you had a clear call to action, a thing that you wanted somebody to do, a next step. Generally, if it's the first sales conversation that you're having with somebody or the first time you're trying to persuade somebody to do something, generally it's going to take a couple of conversations to, to, to help move them along to where you would like them to be. And clarity was all about making sure that people knew what the next step was. That's why software companies will offer you a free trial. They'll try and get you signed up to the free trial straight away. And if they're any good at what they're doing, what they'll do is after the free trial starts, they'll assign an individual person who's going to help you through the through the whole process and show you all the bells and whistles that this particular piece of software has. Same thing with buying a car. They'll want you to take a test drive as soon as possible. They want you to take the next easy step. And he finishes off part two, which is like I said, we're going to start this particular podcast, even though we're four minutes in, but let's just say we're starting it here, with this idea of the five whys so the five whys and he talks about if anyone out there and some of you may have heard on the last podcast um i do have a toddler i have two toddlers and and an older one as well but anyone who does have toddlers will understand that why question well why why do i have to do that why do i have to put on my shoes why 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 but it's actually a great way of of finding clarity on what the next step should be that you're going to ask somebody to do because if you ask yourself five whys about a particular situation, let's stick with just a, a pure sales example for the moment. Let's say you want to uh, sell a used car, which is you're selling your car. Why would somebody buy this car? Well, because it's a good car. It's got very low mileage. Why would they know that? Well, because I'm going to make sure that I tell them. And you go on like that. So you keep asking yourself why, why, why. And what that should do ultimately is to give you the underlying reasons as to why is to, is to discover really what somebody's underlying motivations are. Same thing in a persuasion conversation. If you wanted somebody to, to move to a new point of view, if you wanted to convince somebody to work late on your team or whatever it is, you could just ask them why or ask yourself why five times from their point of view. Why would they be likely to work late? right? And go from there. And every answer then you ask, well, why is that the answer? And eventually you get to a point where you're, you're basically going in circles and you go, well, that's probably the base reason as to why they might want to do something. So anyway, part three of this book is about what to do. So part two is how to be, right? It was about attunement, buoyancy and clarity, the new ABC of sales. Whereas part three is about what to do. And the what to do is, there's three main sections we're going to talk about here. One is the pitch, right? As in how to get your point across really quickly they they talk at the beginning of this section of the book about the elevator pitch the idea of the elevator pitch is that a guy working in a company is finds himself in the elevator or the lift as we call it in in his organization he's in the organ he's in the lift with the ceo of the company and he has from when the doors close until when the ceo gets out of the the lift or the elevator to get his point across about why he should be promoted or an idea he has to improve efficiency or to sell something to him, right? That's called the elevator pitch. And the idea is you want to get your point across in like a minute, 30 seconds, that kind of thing. But in the book, he talks about different types of pitches and he talks about the Pixar pitch. He talks about the one word pitch, the Twitter pitch, the subject line uh, pitch. I'm going to go, I won't go into all of them. I'm going to go into one of them in particular, the, the Pixar pitch. It's, it's um, You can read the book for the rest of them. But it is uh, a great way to understand how you should think about approaching somebody either from a sales point of view or from a 
uh, persuasion point of view or whatever whatever way you're going to move somebody how you pitch it is important the second thing that he talks about is improvisation being able to improvise in the moment now i've anyone who's taken any any of my courses before i've, I've done lots of courses in sales before i've told this story before i'll tell it now real quick uh, many years ago, I was uh, married, but and I'm still married, <laughs> uh, married but childless, right? We didn't have children at the time, and there was one particular evening that there was a, a my wife is in work or something. I had to house myself anyway. I can't remember exactly where she was, but the doorbell rang. I was in the middle of making dinner. I ran out to the uh, front door to open the door. Um, I'd just taken like the pan off the heat, and you know I was right at that uh, critical point of making a a, a dinner doorbell rings I run out and somebody's standing there and it's one of these cold callers who is trying to get you to switch energy providers or broadband providers or something right and it's quarter past seven in the evening and I just don't care right I'm not bothered I don't really I just want to get rid of them as soon as possible and this young girl god bless her she stood there and she was immediately frazzled I hadn't said a word to her I'd said actually what had happened is I'd said how's it going and she kind of got despondent straight away and said oh I was supposed to say that first and I knew straight away that she had memorized a script and she was not going to be able to deviate from this script and by me saying hello first that was enough to throw her off she had no idea where she was in the script as far as she's concerned this is a scene from a play that ends in me uh, switching providers for whatever it was that she was uh, looking for me to switch so She's, you know, all a tizzy and she pulls out her laminated sheet with all the benefits and, and features. She hasn't told me who she is, who she works for, or what anything is. And she just starts pointing to random parts on this laminated A4 sheet about all the benefits and the features. And I said, listen, I'm not, I, I'm not interested. I'm not, this isn't really for me. And then she put her foot inside the house. And, and I was like, hey, that's a bit, what are you doing? Like, that's like real kind of not aggressive but just kind of like with an urgency like she kind of put her foot into the house and um i said listen i'm not interested it was only afterwards when i closed the door i realized she'd obviously had some sales training and somebody at some point had told her uh try and get your foot in the door right that's the the idea of this pitch is to get your foot in the door metaphorically not literally but she took it literally and it's it's a key thing in sales and in, in in persuasion and getting people to move to a new point of view all of those things is improvisation is to make sure that you're able to to roll with the punches as it were back in the day when somebody um didn't have information parity there would have been a sales script that probably would have worked where somebody would be able to to handle your objections and and that kind of thing but most of the time these days people don't like that kind of sales like i said at the very beginning of this little mini mini series of podcasts People love buying things, but they hate being sold to. And it's so true because you want you want to be guided to a sale. You don't want to be confused into it. So anyway, improvisation is something that he talks about in this book. But he talks about it in from the point of view of uh, comedians who've ever been to an um, improv show. Uh, he talks about how you should always use yes and, which I'll talk about when we get to that section as well. And the last part then, the bit we'll finish this, uh, this book on, is to serve. Is that no matter what you're doing is whether it's in sales whether it's in persuasion whether it's in just getting somebody to move to a new point of view you should be doing it from a place of service which is sounds a bit wishy-washy but it is 100 percent true you should always play the long game you should always be trying to move somebody to a 
to a new point of view to get something to, to get them to do something that's mutually beneficial. These things, when you learn these kinds of sales techniques and persuasion techniques, they can be used to manipulate people, but they should never be because when you manipulate people, they'll eventually cop on. They'll cop on sooner rather than later. And you don't want that. You, you, don't, you want to play the long game, whether it's a work colleague, whether it's a, um, a business deal, whether it's in a negotiation, whether it's with your kids. Your kids will know when you're trying to manipulate them as well. And you have to make sure that you're not that you're, you're doing it from a place of service, that you're doing it that's, a, you genuinely believe in what you're doing, right? That's the, the, the point that he talks about. Anyway, back to the first part then is the, is the pitch, is to make sure that uh, you have your pitch down. So at the very beginning of, the, of this podcast, uh, you probably heard me say, get deeper learning from the greatest minds to have ever put pen to paper. That took me ages to come up with that it took me I, I cycled through i don't know how many different versions of that before i settled on something that made sense to me hopefully it makes sense to you too but it makes sense to me it makes sense because that's that's what we're trying to achieve here at use because is to give you deeper learning from the best minds to have ever put pen to paper that's the idea behind what we do so in this book he talks about the the sales pitch being different, or he talks not the sales pitch, he talks about the elevator pitch being different than uh, than it used to be, or there's different versions of it. And one of the things, I'll just talk real quickly um, about about what he says about um, pitching in general. He gives exam- examples from Hollywood, actually, and talks about how people are pitching movies and uh, scripts the whole time. But one of the things he says, that the, uh, it's, it's true of a lot of the things in business, really, um, and really what we've talked about in this course, this podcast is that the pitch isn't necessarily to move others immediately to adopt your idea it's to open a conversation that's the idea of a pitch so imagine if i met a uh an investor uh who, who could be interested in use because or might not be imagine if they said so what do you do and i just went into the technical details behind the back end of our system and uh how we use databases and how we send and pull information from the data like nobody cares about that not at the beginning but if i say something like well we give our users uh, deeper learning from the best business minds that have ever put pen to paper that's my pitch right that's my 10 second pitch not even 10 seconds but three second pitch and from there then all that does is open a conversation so if you're in sales or if you're in, uh, if you need to motivate somebody or you need to persuade somebody, think about your own pitch. Can you do it in a quick short burst that intrigues the other person, that will make them say, tell me more about that. So in this particular section, he talks about the six successors to the elevator pitch. His idea being that, you know, people are working remotely all the time and you don't necessarily are going to see the, see, actually one of the things I'm just thinking now what he says in the book is that the the elevator pitch used to be for people to talk to the CEO, right? Because the CEO used to be in the big corner office where nobody could actually get near them. Whereas these days in most companies, uh, your boss sits with you, right? There's no, you know, open plan offices and, you know, no partitions and that kind of thing. Or there's a really solid open door policy where people can come and go as generally as they please. So getting access to the CEO or to your line manager, it's, it's not that difficult. So the elevator pitch, trying to get your point across in in the time it takes to get up in the in the elevator, it's not really that relevant anymore um, for, for a lot of people. So, um, one of, yeah, so one of the things he talks about um, is the, the one word pitch, the question pitch, the rhyming pitch, which is uh, an interesting one. Um, if the gloves don't fit, 
you must acquit. Remember where that one is from? It's not mentioned in the book now, but I just thought of that one there. If the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. That wasn't done. That was in the O.J. Simpson uh, case, and they reckon that was one of the key key parts of, of why O.J. Simpson um, was found innocent or not guilty. <laughs> I don't know. There's a slight difference there, but he was found not guilty, uh, and it was his lawyer whose name I can't remember now. But it was his lawyer who said that if the if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. I hope I have the quote quote right. But that was like that was like a rhyming pitch. That was something for the for the jurors to go away with, to to think about. And like I said, that's not that wasn't he didn't just think of that on the spot. He he understood the psychology behind giving somebody something that they just constantly say over and over again in their head. But there's two I was going to talk about. One was the subject line pitch, and the other was the uh, the the Pixar pitch. So the subject line pitch is something that's I, I think is always very interesting. It's basically what will go on the subject line of an email to make somebody open that email. Now, most of the time, there's there's two two main kind of themes or kind of uh, trains of thought, I suppose, on what will make somebody open an email. One, it tells them directly what's in this email. You know, um, new report on insert your industry um, salary trends or something like that. You'll you'll click on it if it's of, of value to you or of interest to you. And the second thing is if it's intriguing, if it's something that's a little bit quirky, a little bit different, not really sure what I'm going to expect. But the ones that don't work on anyone who has any sort of savvy in them at all, is the ones that don't work are the ones that hurry, click here now, um, time is running out. You know, They can work at certain points of a sales process or a persuasion process, but not at the beginning. Right, that's you just screams spam right when you, when you read those kinds of email lines so he talks a little bit about the subject line pitch and how to how to structure one in one of those two ways in a way that's either tells people directly what they're going to get from opening this email they're going to be rewarded for opening this email or secondly uh, that it's something that's slightly quirky or slightly intriguing or is leading in in how you and in in opening so by op- by click on it you, m- you might be rewarded uh, in some way I read a great thing there a while ago, um, actually it was a long, long time ago, about sales, about cold calling people. And, you know, being the, the founder of a, of a startup like, like you, because I get those kinds of emails all the time where people, they immediately go into the sales pitch in the email where it's, it's hyperlinks here, there and everywhere. Things are in bold. There's paragraphs with bullet points in it. And I just don't read any of it because I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're sending me this stuff. And it's just pure straight up sales they're just trying to get me to part of my money they're not asking me anything about who i am what i'm interested in or and um, what might be a value for me but one one amazing thing i saw before I, th- I think i read this i don't think i've ever i've ever used it i've never actually seen it in the field i've never seen it live but one thing i i've read before is about when you're cold calling somebody is to as in cold emailing, I should say, not cold calling, but but sending a cold email as in you've got no introduction, you've got no relationship with the, with the individual that you are getting in contact with. It's just ask them a straight up question. No, hi, hope you're well. No, everybody writes that. I think I write it as well. I hope you're well. Uh, I do hope you're well, but it's just, it's, it's a bit uh, overdone at this point. So this guy had said that he would send an email with it would have his signature, so just, you know, founder of Use Because, whatever his company would be, and maybe a contact uh, phone number. He'd have the email from receiving the email. But the question might be like, uh, who does your stationery? Like, whatever it is that he's trying to sell or, or he wants to have a conversation about, 
a one 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 line, one sentence, no hi, no goodbye, no uh, features and benefits of, of the of the product or service. Who does your stationery? Where do you buy your fleet of vans? How do you, how's Salesforce going for you? Right? Whatever the product is, asking a one word question. If somebody's interested, they'll get back in touch. They'll also appreciate you not wasting their time or not like I said, people love buying stuff. They hate being sold to. And that's just a straight up question. This I might have something of value to you. I might not. Just let's just cut to the chase here. It's a, it's a bold way of doing things. I like it. I've I've never tried it. Um, but I, it's something I will. If, if you see an email from me someday saying that, that's uh, you you know that it's um, it's it's a it's a it's. I actually think it's one of the best ways to to open a conversation with somebody. Like everyone in business is, their days are jam-packed with things to be doing. I haven't got time to be listening to your sales pitch just because you spent ages on it. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, if you're gonna try and sell me something, you have to find out if I have a problem first of all that you have the solution to. That's the first thing. Who does your stationery? Where do you buy your your fleet of cars, your your company cars, whatever the, whatever it is, get straight to the point. It's a, it's an interesting way to do it. Anyway, that's the subject line. Um, obviously, if you even if you do have a, a one a one line email like that, you still need a decent subject line to make somebody open it. Um, it could just be the name of your product, something very simple. So the Pixar pitch, it's based on. Uh, so one one of the things he says in, in the book is that Pixar has been on the go since, or they they started having success in 1995 with the first Toy Story film. And at the time of writing, they had grossed $7.6 billion around the world with Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Wall-E, Up, Toy Story 3. We're now on to Toy Story 4, of course. And uh, 26 uh, Oscars that the studio has taken home. And there's a there's obviously some sort of formula to the to how they go about picking the, the movies that they're going to make and how they put them together, a structure, if you like. And this is what they're talking about in this book is the Pixar pitch. So there's a woman who used to be a story artist at the studio. Her name is uh, Emma Coates, and she basically cracked the code. Like, and, and it's it's funny because you can you can you can look at any of the Pixar movies or films, and you you can make this you can make this code fit, which is fascinating. So I'll, I'll read out what she says here. I have it in the book here. I'll read out what she says. Uh, let me see. Uh, Coates has argued that every Pixar film shares the same narrative DNA, a deep structure of storytelling that involves six sequential sentences. So these are the six sentences that make up the Pixar pitch or the, the structure of a Pixar film. Once upon a time, blank, every day, blank, one day, blank, because of that, blank, because of that, blank, until finally, blank so what they do then in the book and this is fascinating is that they give the the plot for finding nemo once upon a time there was a widowed fish named marlin who was extremely protective of his only son nemo every day marlin warned nemo of the ocean's dangers and implored him not to swim far away one day in an act of defiance nemo ignored his father's warnings and swam into the open water because of that He's captured by the by a diver and ends up as a pet fish uh, in a dentist in Sydney. And because of that, Marlin sets off on a journey to recover Nemo. Until finally, Marlin and Nemo find each other, reunite, and learn that love depends on trust. Ah. 
And that six sentence format, it's appealing and it's supple. It's to the point, right? It's there's there's no fat in that at all. There's no uh, it gets to the point. And even when I'm reading that out, you can kind of see the scenes in your head. You can see them in the fish tank in the in the dentists in uh, Sydney and all the people who came along, or the people, <laughs> the other creatures that came along and helped them uh, until finally they're they're united. It's it's an interesting way how uh, how how Pixar have basically found a formula, found a code. And all of their movies basically fit into that structure. And in the book then, um, he gives an example for business then, right? A non-profit organization that's created a home HIV test and uh, they're looking for funders. So their Pixar pitch might go something like this. And I'll read this this little chapter out, this little section out of the book as well. Once upon a time, there was a health crisis haunting many parts of Africa. Every day, thousands of people would die of AIDS and HIV-related illness, often because they didn't know they carried the virus. One day, we developed an inexpensive home HIV kit that allowed people to test themselves with a simple saliva swab. Because of that, more people got tested. And because of that, those with infections saw treatment and took measures to avoid infecting others. Until finally, this menacing disease slowed its spread and more people lived longer lives the end right everybody lives in the end stories are such a hugely hugely powerful part of what we do as human beings it's it, it comes back to like the caveman thing of uh survive and replicate that's that's what humans uh, that's that's our base function right is to survive and to replicate your genes one of the best ways to get a point across would have been through stories is through ex- using what's called mirror neurons basically to put yourself into a situation that somebody is telling you about it's like when a joe rogan actually the the podcaster and, and comedian and ufc commentator he talks a lot about when he's delivering comedy or when he's in a comedy club listening to comedy that when you're it's like it's like mass hypnosis i think is what he calls it, is that you're allowing the comedian to do the thinking for you which is a really interesting way of putting it because it's true because when you're at, when you're at a comedy show and the comedian is like acting out a story or telling you some ridiculous thing that happened you're seeing yourself in that person in that situation you're using like mirror neurons which we talk about and we'll talk about in another podcast but it's basically you kind of putting yourself in that in the place of the comedian and you're just allowing the comedian to do the thinking for you and when you do that, when you put yourself, you use empathy and mirror neurons to put yourself in that situation, what you're really doing is uh, experiencing it without the danger. Right? Now, obviously, hopefully there's not too much danger at a comedy show, but back with the survive and replicate thing, especially the survive part, if one of your caveman buddies was to tell you a story, um, either through language or through grunts or whatever, that would have... That enabled you to be safe the next time you go near that canyon the next time you go near that cliff or that particular snake with a particular red dot on its head or whatever it is that stories were were a huge part of of helping us uh, survive right and it's why they're so they resonate so much with us now it's why it's why fiction is so um popular it's why uh, books films uh, any type of story comedy anything that tells a story anyone who's a good storyteller can get the attention of an entire room and that's ultimately what they're talking about there with the Pixar pit Pixar pitch is that if you can put your idea your uh, thought whatever it is down into a story and, and a, not just any rambling crazy story but a story that that has a beginning a middle and an end that follows that that Pixar uh, pitch structure you have a much better chance of either 
moving somebody to where you want them to move to or to be able to at least get to the next point of the conversation. So the next thing he talks about in chapter eight of the book is improvise uh, or improv uh, to, to be able to roll with the punches, to be able to take what somebody says, no matter what they say, and build on it. And he talks specifically now, he goes into lots of different examples, um, and it's some, I'll, I'll read out one of the examples, but he goes into lots of different ideas about, about what improv is and how it can help. Think about the difference between the words and and but. Now this is a this isn't from the book. I don't think this is the the level of example he's given from the book. But this is one of my examples. Uh, I remember just thinking about this a long time ago. I was explaining the difference between the words and and but to somebody um, in a sales point of view, and this is the example I came up with on the spot. And it's something that always just stuck at me. I don't know if you are aware of the uh, sweet or the candy. I know there's some some Americans listen to this as well. People all over the world listen. Sweets, candy, right? They're called fruit pastels. I think they are fairly uh, ubiquitous. I think they are fairly uh, well-known around the world. Uh, but fruit pastels, they're like squashy kind of, uh, I don't know what you call them, sugar. <laughs> squashy sugar, all different flavors. Now, the example I gave to somebody before was that I like red pastels, but I really like green pastels. So I used the word but there, right? And I say it again then, but say it this way and said, I like red pastels and I really like green pastels, right? So I'll say it one more time. I like red pastels, but I really like green pastels. When I say the word but there, what that really tells you as a listener is that I, I prefer the green ones. I like red pastels, but I really like green ones. I like red pastels, but I really like green ones. It's almost like you, you disregard the first part of the sentence because it's not as important as the second part. But when I say it the other way around, I like red pastels and I really like green pastels. Both the red and the green in that case are equal, right? It's a ridiculous example, but I think it makes the point as to, to the difference between uh, the words and and but. And it's hugely important when it comes to sales and motivation and persuasion and really uh, taking, building a conversation. So what he talks about when it comes to improv is, if you've ever been to, like just, I'll, I don't think I need to explain what an improv uh, comedy gig is, but I'll explain it just very quickly. Uh, basically what happens is there's two or three comedians on the stage, you're gonna act out a scene, and the scene's gonna be based on uh, recommendations or suggestions from the audience, right? So people, they'll say, okay, give us a, give us a situation where we might be standing, and somebody might say a car park. Okay, give us, um, he has a problem, what's his problem? Oh, he's got a broken leg, right, that kind of thing. And then they start the scene. So what has to happen in order for this to work and for in order for it to be funny is that they have to build on what each other says. So they never actually come out and say that that's what they're going to do. But let's imagine the scene starts, they're in a car park, and the first person says, well, here we are in this car park, and it is hammering down rain. The next person along, right, in this imaginary conversation, or this conversation they're making up as they go along, they have to agree that it's raining. So that's like the yes and. Yeah, it is. And it's lucky I have this umbrella. Uh, even though, you know, and whatever, right? So they go from there. Now, if you imagine that they use the word but instead, or they implied the word but instead, here we are in this car park and it's hammering down rain and the other person says, but it's not raining or but whatever, right? So it's like, they that's the end of the scene. That doesn't work then 
they're trying to build something together. They have to keep saying yes and they have to kind of keep putting, th putting things together. And that's a key thing when it comes to using persuasion or to, it comes to, uh, to not falling into an argument with somebody. And he gives a, a great example in the book here. Um, let me just find it here. Uh, it involves two people who are planning a hypothetical gathering, say a high school reunion. So I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. So one person begins with a proposition, for example, let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Every subsequent, subsequent comment from both participants must begin with yes, but. And it's going to unfold, unfold something like this. Let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Yes, but that's going to be too expensive for some people. Yes, but that's the only way uh, the people who really want to go uh, will actually attend. Yeah, but some of them are our classmates and they don't gamble. Yeah, but there's more to do there than just play play blackjack. Yes, but even without gambling, it's still not a great place for people to bring their families. Yeah, but reunions are better with all those kids. Yeah, but if we can't find childcare at home, then people won't go. And on and on it goes and just spins out of control. And then he gets the... So this is uh, an example from uh, an improv class that the author actually took. And the person running the improv class gets them to do it again. Only this time everyone answers uh, with and instead of but. So it goes something like this. Let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Yes, and if it's too expensive some, for some people, we can raise money or organize road trips. Yeah, and if we start early, we could reserve a block of rooms at a hotel that offer volume discounts. Yes, and for families with kids and for people who don't gamble, we could organize activities during the day. Yes, and if we have enough people, we might be able to pool our resources to pay for babysitters. So one night, maybe all the parents can go out on their own. And so it goes. Right, so when you change the word but and and, it makes a huge difference. And that's kind of a key thing when it comes to uh, to sales, to persuasion, and all of the things I've mentioned several times now. Another thing he mentions in this particular section is to actually hear offers. So even when somebody gives you an objection, is to is to hear the offer within that objection. Say you're you're raising money for a particular charity, you're gonna run a marathon for um, you know, uh, somebody, so your favorite charity. And you say to one of your friends, uh, could you could you donate 200 euro or 200 dollars 200 pounds whatever it is and your friend says i can't give you 200 dollars right now there's an offer in there so i can't give you 200 dollars right now or you can't give me 200 dollars uh ever right is it the is it the amount or is it the timing so there's an offer in there that, that the that the the listener has to hear which is um, a key point and he goes on a bit about that in in the book um hearing offers so when somebody gives you an objection, they, they generally don't say no straight up. There'll usually be something in what they say that'll, that'll give you a little thread, something to pull on. The third thing he talks about in improv is to make your partner look good, which is a, a key thing, right? In any sales conversation, persuasion, make the other person look good. That's one of the best ways you're going to move somebody to your preferred point of view. Make your partner look good. Chapter 9, he talks about being of service to people. And I'm going to finish this section off and, and, and essentially the, the podcast off with this story that he tells about a former mid-level AT&T executive named Robert Greenleaf. And he wrote an essay that essentially launched a movement. He called it Servant as a Leader. And what he did with this idea of being uh, of of leadership going from say command and control to a leader being basically a servant to their team 
it basically upended all the philosophies and turned out to, to, to be the, the way management or the way leadership is these days is that because again of information parity because of the leaders not needing to be the gatekeepers of the information everyone has access to all the same information the leader needs to be a servant it's almost like there's an analogy of a team you know making their way through through a jungle and they're hacking down all the uh, all the the brush and, and stuff in front of them to, to get through the jungle and everyone has their own job to do and really what the the leader's job is not to be out 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 the front leading it should be at the back sharpening the tools and making sure everybody has what they need to do their job and that's ultimately what this guy said in 1970 this guy robert greenleaf is to subordinate themselves to their followers that's what a leader should be and his philosophy included things like do no harm or to respond to any problem by listening first and to accept and to empathize rather than just reject so a leader should like and it's it's a thing that all the all the best managers or i shouldn't say managers managers are different than leaders but the best people who have led your teams the best ones have always had strong emotional intelligence they've always been good listeners and uh, they've always known when to put an arm around you and when to give you a kick up the backside they all know the difference between the two and when they should do one over the other and this is how Daniel H. Pink, the author of To Sell as Human, essentially wraps up this book. He talks about servant leadership is a great way of, of approaching sales, and he calls it servant selling. It begins with the idea that those who move others aren't manipulators, but servants. They serve first and sell later. And the test, that's just like Robert Greenleaf's, is the best and most difficult to administer, and it's this. If the person you're selling to agrees to buy, Will his or her life improve? And when your interaction is over, will the world be a better place than when you began? And if the answer is yes, then that's servant selling, and now you're a salesperson.